Well, dear friends, as we prepare for the preaching of, and reading and preaching of God's Word, let's rise and we'll sing the first verse of hymn 173, Almighty God, Your Word is Cast, 173. Please remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. My sermon text today, as we continue our consideration of the Gospel of Mark, is is a passage that was preached not too long ago by a guest preacher, Reverend Jim Stevenson, but uh, but uh, which is uh, worth uh, going back and taking another look at. Mark chapter ten, verses thirteen through sixteen. Mark chapter ten, verses thirteen. Through 16. Let's hear with reverence and awe the word of our God. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please join me in your hearts as we pray for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, sovereign and eternal God, by your Holy Spirit, once again, open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word. Bless me, your unworthy servant, with grace to declare your word with clarity and power and with the assistance of your spirit. And we pray that by your spirit, the word that is proclaimed and considered this day would bear much spiritual fruit in our hearts and lives. Fruit that brings glory to your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Dear friends, the title of my sermon this morning is Permit the Children to Come. And if you have a a bulletin or a sermon outline, uh, which is made available in the foyer, you'll notice a number of keywords that you can keep track of if you find that helpful in following along in the sermon. Well, the big question I have for all of us today is what is the place of infants and young children in Christ's church? Have you ever considered that question? Do they have any place at all in Christ's church? And are the children of believers to be regarded as full members of the covenant community who are just as capable by the sovereign grace of God of receiving the grace and blessing of Christ as our older children and adults? Or are the young children of God's children to be viewed as little pagans, little pagans whom the church must relegate either to the nursery or to a so-called children's church until they're old enough to make a mature decision for Christ on their own. And most important of all, what is our Savior's attitude toward the young children of God's professed children? 
Well, dear friends, our passage for this Lord's Day morning gives us some very clear and helpful teaching on these controversial matters. Now, the importance of this account, the importance of this, uh, uh, this section of Scripture is highlighted by the fact and underscored by the fact that it is recorded three times in Holy Scripture. It's recorded not only here in Mark's Gospel, but it's recorded in the other synoptic Gospels as well. For example, it is found in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, and in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And I've said before that the Holy Spirit only has to say something once for it to be important. But when God the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Scriptures, repeats himself, then we especially need to take notice and take these things to heart. So again, this all underscores and highlights just how important to Jesus our Lord are the children of his followers. It's also interesting to notice in the flow of Mark's account, the placement of this account in Mark's narrative. On the last Lord's Day, we considered the first part of uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, where Jesus touches upon uh, the issue of marriage and divorce. And later on in this chapter, in verses 17 through 31, Jesus will touch upon issues having to do with money and possessions in the account of the rich young ruler, uh, which again follows uh, our account for today in verses 17 to 31, in which we will be considering on a future Lord's Day. Do you notice the subjects here that are laid out for us here in Mark chapter 10? Marriage and divorce, children and possessions. These subjects that our Lord addresses in this chapter naturally connect with one another. And so that is a significant thing to notice as we approach our text for this Lord's Day morning. But let's dive in, having hopefully given some background information that is helpful. Let's dive into what uh, the scriptures teach us here in this uh, portion of God's word. And the first thing I want us to notice, brothers and sisters, notice our Lord's determination to bless covenant children. Notice our Lord Jesus Christ's determination to bless covenant children. Look again at verse 13 and 14. It says, and they were bringing children to him. They meaning parents of these children. And why were they bringing children to him? So that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. The word in the Greek for indignant there indicates angry. Jesus got angry too. In this, in this case, he was angry with his own disciples. He was indignant and he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. He gives a positive command and a negative prohibition. Permit them to come. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God, here's the reasoning why, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, when we in Reformed circles speak of covenant children, uh, if you're not from a Reformed background or a Presbyterian background, that terminology may be a bit confusing. What we are talking about when we talk about covenant children are the children of professed believers whom we believe uh, belong to the uh, visible covenant community along with their parents. So we call them covenant children. Now, again, looking at verse 13, we are told they were bringing children to him. 
The Greek term for children here in Mark's account is a more general term, but when we compare this with the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 18, verse 15, it is clear that these children were very young children, including even infants or babies. Turn with me, if you would, to the parallel text in Luke chapter 18, verse 15. Luke 18, verse 15. says, and they were bringing even their babies to him. It's a different Greek word than is used for children in Mark's account. They were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. These were children that were so young that they couldn't bring themselves of their own power or of their own choice to Jesus. They had to be brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. And why did their parents bring them to Jesus. Well, we're told in Mark's account, so that he might touch them. But again, it isn't just that they wanted Jesus to give them a quick touch. As the parallel passage in Matthew 19:13 says, they brought them to Jesus, quote, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The touch is not just a, a quick touch. It is so that he might actually Take them in his arms, lay his hands upon them, and pray for them. Clearly, these parents wanted Jesus to touch their children so that their children might receive our Lord's blessing. And what kind of blessing did they want for their children? Well, the blessing that they want for their children is obviously a spiritual blessing. For they want the Savior to touch their children. And our Savior lays his hands on them. He takes them in his arms. He embraces them. And he prays for them. He blesses them. As John Calvin writes in his commentary on this passage, he says, There is no room, therefore, to doubt that they asked for them, the parents asked for their children, a participation of his grace. Now, what Calvin is claiming, beloved, is that these parents were bringing their children to the Lord Jesus Christ so that he might bless them with the gift of salvation, which indicates that they viewed the Lord Jesus as the source of salvation. They, In bringing their children to Jesus, they recognized we don't have the power to save our children, to deliver our children, to bless our children. Only you, Lord, can bless our children with your saving grace. So they view Jesus as the source of salvation. It also indicates that they believed that our Lord Jesus had the power, the authority, and the willingness to bestow the wonderful gift of salvation upon their children, even though their children were not yet capable of consciously believing in Christ or making a decision for Christ or responding to his gospel call. Now, how do the disciples respond to these parents who are seeking to bring their children to the Lord Jesus for Jesus to bless them. It says the disciples rebuked them. Remember that the disciples are still operating under what the theologians call a theology of glory. They still have confused ideas about the Messiah. They're still looking for a mighty political nationalistic Messiah. At least to some extent they're still confused about the type of Savior Jesus is. 
And so, in their minds, apparently, in the minds of the disciples of Jesus, certainly Jesus, who is the Messiah, this great messianic king who's going to reign on David's throne from Jerusalem, in their minds, certainly King Jesus would not have time to waste on these children. I mean, in their minds, perhaps they considered little children to be too unimportant for Jesus to, quote, waste his time on. But what is Jesus' view? How does Jesus respond to this? Again, we learn in verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, when he saw that his disciples were putting obstacles in the way of these parents seeking to bring their children to Jesus, when, when Jesus sees that his disciples are trying to prevent these parents from bringing their children to Jesus, it says he was indignant. What does that imply? Well, beloved, that implies that Jesus wants his followers to bring their children to him so that he might bless them. And again, he is indignant toward those who would hinder them from receiving his blessing. Now, I think there are many lessons and takeaways and and applications that we could uh, derive from uh, what we've observed so far in our text for today. But let me lay before you just a couple of applications. First of all, we who are Christian parents and we who are members of the church, whether you're single or married, whether you have children or not, uh, it is our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to, to care for the lambs of Christ in our midst. We as Christian parents, though, especially should seek to bring our children to Christ so that they might receive his blessing and salvation. Well, Pastor Jeff, how can we do that today? These parents were able to bring their their children to Jesus because Jesus was still bodily present uh, during his earthly ministry and before his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Jesus was here in the flesh, but now he has gone to heaven. So uh, how do we today, as Christian parents and as concerned church members, how do we bring our children and the children of the church to Jesus Christ since Christ is no longer with us in his bodily presence as he had been with his disciples on this particular occasion. There's many ways to answer that question. One of the answers to that question comes from the passage I read to you earlier from the book of Deuteronomy. And that is one way that we bring our children to Jesus is by teaching, catechizing, and educating them in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I want us to go back to that passage in Deuteronomy 6 and look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. In this uh, passage, Moses says, Hear, O Israel, The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall treasure God's word in your heart. But not just keep it to yourself. Notice what he goes on to say. Verse 7. You shall teach them how. You shall teach these commandments, these statutes. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And then staying here in Deuteronomy 6, skip down to verse 20. Let me read verses 20 to 25. 
Moses says, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. In other words, when your children ask you, what does all of this, what do these commandments mean? Moses says, give them instruction in who the Lord is and what the Lord has done to redeem and rescue his people. Instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Instruct them in the word of the Lord. It's also significant. There's an entire book of Holy Scripture, the book of Proverbs, written by Solomon to his royal sons to instruct them in the ways of divine wisdom. All of this underscores the point, brothers and sisters, That we bring our children to the Lord. One of the ways that we do so is by teaching them the ways of the Lord. Teaching them the word of the Lord. Teaching them the truth of God's word. We teach. We catechize. We educate them in the faith. We do that by discussing the things of the Lord as a family. Uh, One uh, practice that many have found helpful and edifying is the practice of family worship. Worshiping together as a family, praying together, reading scripture together, catechizing one another. And also uh, home and Christian schooling is, is a way that we can help to teach and catechize and educate our covenant children in the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. Another means or way that we bring our children to the Lord Jesus Christ is to pray regularly for them. Pray regularly for your children and pray for the children of the church that Christ might bless them with his saving grace. We can bring our children and the children of the church into the presence of Jesus by praying for them and pleading his covenant mercies for them. And of course, be active in your church involvement and have your children actively involved in the church, even from their youngest years. As the a pastor of a number of congregations, one of the uh, things that I've observed in the past that is very sad is when I see uh, Christian parents treating church as sort of an optional secondary thing. You know, that there's a sports event on a particular Lord's Day morning that we've got to get to, or even a family occasion. You know, nothing wrong with sports or family, but this is the Lord's Day. You know, our children pick up on our example And when they see that church is only of secondary importance to us, let us not be surprised if they grow up and regard church involvement and involvement in the public means of grace as a secondary or optional thing as well. So we need to be active in our church involvement and teach our children to come to the means of grace, the public means of grace that are available in the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, beloved, whether or not we ourselves have children, we in the church should be very welcoming toward families with young children and not be like the disciples who viewed these covenant children and their parents as annoyances. You ever tempted to view the children of the church as an annoyance? They're not. They're a blessing. And it's wonderful to hear the voice of children 
in the public assembly of worship. May our church be a place where Christian families feel welcomed as they come to bring their children into the presence of King Jesus. But next, as we move on in our consideration of this passage, let us take to heart what this passage implies about the place of children in the church. Let us consider what this passage implies about the place of children in the church. Verse 14, Jesus says, Permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them. What is the reason? What is the rationale? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is his reign, his gracious reign, his reign of grace and salvation in the hearts and lives of his believing children. And we in the church, we are a community of the kingdom. And Jesus says, covenant children, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Covenant children belong to the kingdom of God, and therefore they are to be considered as members of the visible institutional church. Dr. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says the following. He says, the reason Jesus gives for ordering the disciples to allow the little children to come to him and to stop hindering them is, quote, for to such, that is, to them and to all those who in humble trustfulness are like them, belongs the kingdom of God. Our Lord's comment here, uh, where he says, for to such, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, this comment clearly seems to indicate that our Lord viewed children as having a place in his kingdom. But pastor, they're not old enough to make a decision for Christ. They're not old enough to understand. Does their lack of ability to understand, does their lack of a mature faith prevent God and his sovereign grace from intervening in their lives and blessing them with his mercy and grace? Of course not. In fact, what a perfect picture of our helplessness in sin. These little children, including these infants, were brought by their parents to Jesus. They couldn't bring themselves to Jesus. But Jesus takes them up into his arms, indicating that his grace takes the priority. He takes the initiative in grace. He reaches out to us before we are even able to reach out to him. What an illustration of sovereign grace and mercy. Our Lord's comment indicates that he viewed covenant children, the children of his children, as having a place in his kingdom. And if they belong to his kingdom, then they ought to be welcomed as members of his visible covenant community, the church. If the covenant children of the church belong to the kingdom and church of God, then one of the implications of this, and this is not a sermon on infant baptism, but one implication from this passage One legitimate inference from this passage is that because they are members of his kingdom and church, they ought to be received into the membership of the church through the sacrament of holy baptism. Baptism is a sign and seal of entrance into into the visible church and into union with Christ. John Calvin writes, we employ this passage as a shield against the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists in the days of the Reformation were the rebaptizers. And by the way, the Anabaptists historically have some differences with modern-day Baptists, so don't read that into what Calvin is saying. But nevertheless, uh, he points out that we in the Reformed faith employ this passage as a shield against the Anabaptists. 
They refuse baptism to infants because infants are incapable of understanding that mystery which is denoted by it. We, on the other hand, Calvin says, maintain that since baptism is the pledge and figure of the forgiveness of sins and likewise of adoption by God, it ought not to be denied to infants whom God adopts and washes with the blood of his son. Their objection, the objection that is raised by those of a Baptistic or Anabaptistic viewpoint, their objection that repentance and newness of life are also denoted by it is easily answered. Hear Calvin out. He says, infants are renewed by the Spirit of God according to the capacity of their age, till that power which was concealed within them grows by degrees and becomes fully manifest at the proper time. Now, Calvin goes on to refer to verse 16, where it says, And he took them in his arms and began blessing them. I believe the, uh, the implication of the text is he was continuously blessing them, laying his hands on them. Calvin says of this, quote, In short, by embracing them, he testified that they were reckoned by Christ among his flock. And if they were partakers of the spiritual gifts which are represented by baptism, it is unreasonable that they should be deprived of the outward sign. But it is presumption and sacrilege to drive far from the fold of Christ those whom he cherishes in his bosom and to shut the door and exclude as strangers those whom he does not wish to be forbidden to come to him. Friends, since our Lord Jesus wants to bless the children of his children, and since covenant children have a place in Christ's visible church and kingdom, and since covenant children should not be deprived of the covenant sign of baptism, let us consider, and this is my third point on your sermon outline, let us consider what our attitude should be toward children in the church. Let us consider what our attitude should be towards the children of Christ's church. How should we view the children of the church? Well, first of all, covenant children are to be valued and highly esteemed. They are not to be demeaned or patronized or viewed as annoyances. Yes, it is true. Our young children are, are they don't have the life experience to understand or the, the mental capacity at that age to understand uh, the complexities of, of, of our faith. Uh, and nor do they have the maturity to behave all the time in, in, uh, in appropriate ways. The scriptures testify that, that our children by nature, that the natural bent of our children, as with all sinners, is towards folly, towards foolishness. They have to be taught wisdom. But that was true of all of us when we were young children. There is a, a saying out there that children should be seen but not heard. Is that the way it should be in the church? Should children be seen but not heard in the church? Well, that doesn't seem to be Jesus' attitude toward the children of his children. So we should value and highly esteem the covenant children of the church because they belong to the visible church as covenant members. Covenant children are also not to be viewed as little pagans, but instead should be viewed as Christian children. Now, hold on there, because I know how some might react. Are you saying that that just because a child is raised in a godly home, that that child is necessarily or automatically saved? No, that's not what I'm saying. And I don't think that that's what Jesus is implying here in this passage as well. Of course, being the child of godly believing parents does not automatically or necessarily guarantee salvation. Covenant children must themselves, 
by the sovereign grace of God, they must themselves believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior and repent of sin, just like everyone else, if they would be saved. However, they are, as Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 7.14, they are to be regarded as covenantally holy, set apart, as part of Christ's visible church. And they are to be regarded as such even before they can make a mature profession of their faith in Christ. Even though not all covenant children are saved or will be saved, and even though the line of election and reprobation even cuts through the the membership of the visible church, nevertheless, God does not view them as little pagans, and neither should we. They are covenantally speaking, at least. They are covenantally Christians. They're not little pagans, and we should raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know, as a result of the influence of evangelical revivalism in our church culture, there is this expectation that, you know, if you're really saved, if you're really in a right relationship with God, then you will be able to remember the exact time, date, and place when you personally trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, I don't know about you folks, but but that was my own experience. And so far as I understand God's working in my own heart, I can remember my conversion. I can remember crying out to the Lord Jesus for mercy when I was a 15-year-old. The summer after my uh, freshman year of, of high school. I remember the sense of peace that came over me. My conversion experience was a bit Lutheresque, if you will. There was a struggle with conviction of sin, and, and, and there was peace that came afterwards. But I've spoken to other uh, devoted believers who love the Lord, and you know, you talk, you talk to others, especially those who've been raised in a faithful church, where they've heard the gospel from their youngest years, and you ask them, well, when did you come to faith? Well, I don't know. I can always, I can always remember uh, believing in Christ and loving him and repenting of my sins. I can never remember a time when I didn't feel conviction for my sins and trust Jesus as my Savior and long to follow him. With respect to our covenant children, that is really the ideal, beloved. It is not, the the issue is not, can you remember the exact time when you were converted? The issue is, as J.I. Packer has put it, the issue is convertedness. Not can you remember when you first believed and repented, but are you now believing and repentant? Our covenant children should be regarded not as little pagans, but as covenantally Christian. But finally, notice and understand what this passage teaches us about what is required for you and for me to receive the kingdom of God. This is my final point. Understand what is required for you to receive the kingdom of God. Verse 15, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God? Well, since the kingdom of God is God's gracious reign of salvation in the hearts and lives of his people, to receive the kingdom of God means to receive the gift of salvation. And what is required to receive the gift of salvation? Well, Jesus says, you must receive it like a child. What is is it that characterizes young children and infants? Young children and infants are helpless, and they know it. That's why they cry out when they're hungry, when they need the diaper changed. They can't do it themselves. They cry out. They're trusting. They're receptive. They don't fight back. 
Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God. They don't fight back. They don't resist. William Hendrickson writes, Receiving the kingdom of God as a little child means to accept it with genuine, trustful simplicity, with unassuming humility. He goes on to say here that Jesus, quote, is talking about the simple, humble, unquestioning, trustful manner in which a child accepts what is offered to him. Dear listener, let me ask you, have you received God's gift of salvation offered to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you received it as a little child? In other words, are you taking God at his word, trusting that God is faithful to keep his promise? Promises such as John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, there must be some fine print there, right? That's, that's the, the cynical adult in us, looking at the promises of God. There's got to be fine print. It can't be that simple. Just take him at his word. God means what he says. He says what he means. And he says in his word, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That means to trust him for salvation from sin. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. To receive the kingdom as a little child is to take him at his word, to rest in his promises and not to fight back. May God in his sovereign mercy grant unto you and to me the grace to receive and rest upon Christ and Christ alone for salvation with a childlike, not a childish, but a childlike faith. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord and Father in heaven, what a mystery it is that you choose in your ordinary providence to work covenantally in the context of families. How we thank you for taking us by your sovereign grace into your family by giving us the grace to believe upon Christ as our Lord and Savior. And how we thank you, Lord God, for the covenant children of the church. We pray your blessing upon each and every one of them. We pray that each and every one of them would be taken up into the arms of our sovereign Messiah King Jesus and would be blessed with the grace of salvation and renewal. Lord, give us grace as parents and as adults in the church, those of us who are parents and adults, uh, to treat the children, the covenant children of the church well, uh, to pray for them and to bring them by faith and through prayer into the presence of Jesus. And Lord, help us to take these truths to heart and learn from them and put them into practice in our lives. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.